the DBN Network. Browns fans talking to Browns fans. Good evening on this uh, chilly, more fall-like day. Um, I don't know how the temperatures are where you're listening, but today and this week was the first uh, indication that we've had that, that fall might be around the way and, and more importantly and sadly the uh the winter is going to blow through right right behind it um my name is josh finney this is uh this believe land is your land and i'm joined by my ever-present uh host john colosimo welcome to the uh podcast tonight john hey good to hear from you and uh i'm here in snowy vermont this morning because we got some snow last night so it it is winter here buddy (laughs) You're giving me uh, you're giving me flashbacks of living up in New England and, and having six months of winter that kicks off in October. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, we got some snow last night, and it's been since about the third day we got here about a week ago. Uh, it's been about pitch black starting at about seven thirty at night. Mm-hmm. So we've had to wrap things up as far as sightseeing before then. It's really not it's really not hard to understand why uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine have such like well-grounded beer scenes because when you are, are basically trapped in the house by cold weather starting in October through May, like you better have a good beer stash on hand to keep yourself busy. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and they, they do do their work on that here. They do. They do. I really like it. It's funny. Um, I always kind of assumed that, that Cleveland had one of the better beer scenes around and then moving up to New England, living up there for 10 years, I was just really blown back by the quality of the stuff up there. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things that they've got here is um, all these smaller, and I know they've grown over the past few years um, by almost necessity because people are coming up here to buy them. Uh, But I think they started a whole bunch of little microbrews, you know, which with things being as spread out as they are, that makes sense for this scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, now you've got, and, and I acknowledge that there's a little bit of white whale here because none of these guys ship, you know, so you got to come here to get it. So there's a little bit of white whale to it. But uh, they've developed their own style of IPA, which uh, I still think a lot of the country hasn't yet tasted yet, which is that New England style IPA. They're actually mm-hmm. making a new BJPC category for it if you compete in beer contests, uh, if you brew beer. Um, so because it's a very different style IPA. And uh, so I, I got to do the treks, but everything's about like an hour apart, you know, so. To, for me to, you know, do the Hill Farmstead, do the, you know, Alchemist, uh, gets to, um, you know, Burlington Beer Factory, all those things are in very different places. Uh, you know, my, the whole trunk of my car is filled with cases of beer that I'm bringing home, which you actually are one of the benefactors of here soon. So, Let's go. Uh, but it's been pretty great, man. And it's uh, unique because you just can't get it other places. So I think that's like the difference between say a DC and a, um, you know, a Cleveland scene is that uh, it has a, a very, very um, pronounced uh, unique flavor here uh, that you just don't get other places. And I think that's kind of what separates it. You just got to come here if you want to get it or know somebody that does. Yeah. I, I can fully appreciate that. And and you're right. Like it just, it doesn't even ship oftentimes around the, the fringes of new England, like it really, like it is regional. And when you're at the beer stores in Connecticut or Rhode Island, you're not seeing a ton of the really great stuff. That's, you know, not even an hour and a half away. Whereas you're someplace Correct. like, a, you're someplace like a Cleveland that has breweries in Columbus, breweries in Cincinnati. I see a ton of Cincinnati beers in Columbus. I see a ton of Cleveland beers down in Columbus. Um, that we're t- the same geographic distance is just like a black hole as far as uh, the way that the, the, the beer scene travels up there. 
And I'll say one more thing, too, is um, I don't know that it'll change, even if they wanted to change the capacity, because uh, the one thing that's true about this uh, New England style is uh, it relies heavily on like the hop aromas and stuff. And that's very volatile. So point being, if you brew this thing and you ship it within, you know, four weeks, that's a different beer. So it can't sit. It cannot sit on a shelf somewhere. So, uh, you know, it might be by necessity. I'm not sure it ever will go far unless it starts being brewed locally somewhere else. Oh, no kidding. Uh, see, come for the uh, hot brown takes and learn something about beer today on the podcast. <laughs> um, I am glad that you're bringing the good stuff down. Uh, I, I do know from personal experience that John is a uh, expert brewer and he makes a really, really tasty New England IPA. Before trying his, um, I was... Uh, kind of relegated for the IPAs that I would drink to the stuff that comes out of Market Garden um, and a couple of the Great Lakes variants and, and an occasional 90-minute IPA uh, from Dogfish, which, which is along with the, the what is it, the all-day drinker from Founders? Day oh, all-day IPA. Yeah, yeah all-day IPA, or just, or just kind of like the standards for that brew. But, but you really turned me on to a whole different kind of beer that I really like. Yeah, I even uh, was able to turn my mother-in-law a little bit this weekend who doesn't even like beer so much, let alone a hoppy IPA. So it definitely is like a beer. Even if you didn't like IPAs, you ever get the chance, try a New England style one. All right. All right. So you heard it here first. Um, And I'm I'm glad that you uh, brought a trunk full home because if we we experience anything like what happened last Sunday, you're going to need at least half of the trunk to survive this coming weekend. I, uh, yeah. I that was a blitzkrieg. I, I I know we're a couple days past, and everyone's gotten their their thoughts up on the Chargers game. I didn't uh, I didn't expect the Browns to win that game. The Chargers are an excellent team, both offensive and defensively. I know they're a little banged up in the secondary, um, but I really expected the game to be a lot more competitive than it was. And and we can point to a myriad of reasons as to why how we got to that place, how we ended up with it being. Uh, not competitive at all. It just ended up being a blowout where where you kind of saw a little bit of quit. You saw a little bit of uh, frustration seeping in, but um, good teams give themselves an opportunity to compete in those kind of games. Even if things aren't clicking at first, they manage to hang in. They manage to get some stops um, that they, they aren't on the field for sustained drives from the other team. They, they, they hang around long enough to be viable in the fourth quarter to make it a game, or at least late. They, they, they look to get a couple bounces and get back in the game. The Browns never did. They just never gave themselves an opportunity to be part of that football game. No, I agree. I think uh, that was the uh, that was the biggest takeaway as far as um, what was upsetting to me is just you expect to come back in that second half uh, with some fight and uh, you're a little punch back, even when it didn't start off the way we needed it to. Even with them coming back and scoring a touchdown, you still would expect a team to come out of the second half ready to fight um, a little bit here. And instead, uh, you know, they got that quick touchdown on us and made extended the lead. And then we saw that, that dreaded word quit. And I don't know that I've seen that out of this team in, in a while. I mean, that it was, it was ugly to watch. I thought it was, it was, it was enormously frustrating to watch. And and I wonder everyone's got their moment. They're like, Oh, if they just, you know, if Ratley caught that ball or if Callaway caught that ball, totally different ball game. The moment for me, I think is that early uh, decision to go for it on fourth down and not coming away with anything. And then immediately giving up points on the back end of that. I don't remember what happened, which touchdown it was, but I remember, you know, they had three points. They had an opportunity to close to within uh, one score game. I think it would have made it 14 to six and they immediately uh, give up another uh, ball breaking touchdown on the other end. And I felt like that was what really, like things weren't going well at that point, but it was just an avalanche at that point of, of gnarly stuff happening and, and, and bad news. 
Right. And by the time, uh, you know, we're later in the second half, we're watching Philip friggin' Rivers blocking Jamie Collins down the sideline. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Man, I saw that on repeat about three times before I believed it. Um, Yeah, it was just, um, it really did snowball from there. Yeah. uh, I'm going to pretend like you didn't bring up the Jamie Collins thing again because I've (laughs) spent a couple days being mad about things uh, and and arguing with people on Twitter about the, the, finer points of that game and that was by far one of the lowest moments of this of this brown season anything not involving tyrod taylor is gonna like be closely followed by jamie collins getting washed out on a play by a quarterback <laughs> you know and i have been upset with him um multiple times over the course of since we traded for him there's been i think a few games where you saw the talent that uh that he has and the reason why you take a chance on that like they did but you know, this this was an all time low for him in a uh, career for the Cleveland Browns that hasn't been great anyway. So, and I I just wish I, I made this comment on Twitter, man. You know, it's the dumbest thing. It's the most Brownsest thing you'll ever hear, right? If it weren't for Michael Kendricks getting busted for insider <laughs> trading, we'd be in a great position to sit Jamie Collins down right now. <laughs> seriously, that seriously, that that's where we're at. I remember making jokes about in the offseason just being like, I just don't want to be in a place where I'm regretting, you know, a street free agent that we signed that almost got sent to prison and a couple six round draft picks and undrafted free agent wide receivers away from being a successful season or not. Like, don't let us get to that point by week five. And here we are. Like, there are so many ways to look at how this team was structured and some of the fundamental flaws up front. And some of them you can't do anything about. Like, John Dorsey put a lot of energy and a lot of time into building a, a defensive backfield, a DB room that was really good. I like what he did with the safeties by moving, uh, you know, Body Calhoun into a position where he could back up to Marius Randall. And obviously there, there's some depth at strong safety. And he just brought in a stable of cornerbacks. So when you saw a, a sad injury to a guy like uh, Money Mitch, you had a guy waiting in the wings like uh, EJ Gaines, who's experienced in the position knows Greg Williams defense knows what's expected of him and was immediately able to step in. Um, Obviously the Browns are in bad shape there, but that's not of anything of their doing. When you look at the linebacker room and the Browns were told specifically by Michael Kendricks and his staff, like, Hey, there may be some legal action pending against me. I don't think it's going to be a big deal. Like don't go into the season with three guys, a guy with pending legal action and a bunch of undrafted free agents. And I like, James Burgess, I liked B.J. Bellow um, in the limited uh, reps that those guys got in the preseason. These were guys that looked like they'd be respectable depth candidates, um, but they re- we really got into that depth quickly. Literally any injury to those starting three, and now we're into unknowns. Um, and, and, and I think that those aren't the only two position groups that uh, Dorsey and Hugh Jackson like, kind of teamed up to leave hanging. Um, on the offense, um, can you talk about some of the ways in which – like? some of the other position groups were, were kind of left without uh, any kind of respectable recovery from, from an injury. Yeah, I think, um, I think to start out the wide receiver one, you know, because that goes back to the draft, you know, we, we came into the draft, uh, you know, we, we went, we snagged Jarvis ahead of the draft for a fourth and signed him to a big deal. Um, we're still figuring out what we're going to do with Gordon. Uh, I think everybody, still thought that we needed a a solid insurance plan uh, through the draft for Josh Gordon, you know, because we know that we can have one day and lose him the next. And going into that uh, 
that wide receiver draft. Uh, it wasn't a great draft, so it wasn't like uh, something where we were looking to snag one at the top of the draft or anything like that. You know, we get to, you know, the top of the second round. That's where you might have started to look at some of these wide receivers. But even into the third, uh, you know, there were some some decent-looking guys. To take Callaway as your insurance pick, this is a guy that hadn't played in a, in a year. Okay. He hadn't played in a year and he might be of cut of the same cloth in a certain way to Josh Gordon. So I don't know how you make that your backup pick. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like uh, trying to, to fight fire with something that's also <laughs> very flammable. You're, you're trying to put out what has been a gaping blazing dumpster fire in the Browns wide receiver position. We've been joking around on Twitter about how by, by week five of most of these seasons, we're onto the Bryce Treggs of the world. We're bringing in guys from other teams' practice squads who don't understand the system, don't have any chemistry with the quarterback, and are just exacerbating you know, problems with, with the quarterback play uh, by removing that sense of comfort and chemistry. Um, and what they did is they said, we think, we, can, we think that this guy has commensurate talent to stack up against Josh Gordon, and we think that we have the kind of system in place in which we can keep him on the straight and narrow. And that may all be true. Like, I don't – we're still kind of early into Cowley's career. I don't want to shovel dirt on him. He's, for the most part – been a model citizen, which is, you know, tough to say for a guy who, you know, is busted with, yeah, <laughs> by, by Antonio Callaway standards, <laughs> been a model citizen. Um, you know, misdemeanors, misdemeanors and less are, are a win, uh, given, given the record there. But the problem was is that he was a guy who hadn't played football for a year. He was a guy that wasn't exactly the most sure-handed hands catcher in college football. And then he comes in and he's expected to be a reliable target because um, amongst the non-Josh Gordon receivers, you needed to have somebody who could stretch the field that was going to catch the ball. You're looking for a, um, a Devery Henderson or a Aldrick Robinson, or, you know, you're looking for one of these guys in the system that's really going to take the top off of defenses and, and isn't going to be asked to do complicated route trees. Um, and that's just been kind of an unmitigated disaster, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, you know, after, like going through the Rod Streeters of the world, um, you know, I, I got to say that they're they're kind of lucky, you know, that you and I have had a little bit of an argument about that uh, that Ratley play. Throw that out the window, okay? The kid performed pretty well, yeah, given the circumstances. Absolutely. Sure. And to be frank, they're freaking lucky that he was able to perform that well. You know, at this point, you're digging down deep, and what are we on? Wide receiver six, seven. We're definitely among the guys who just barely made this 53-man roster. And uh, and we're trying to force that ball to him, so that goes into Todd Haley. So we don't we don't have to get into that. But I I just think that uh, you know they've gotten lucky and had a poor strategy came in coming in for that yeah. wide receiver core. Yeah, I actually I actually liked Damian Ratley. I think I thought he played really well. Um, it got kind of lost in the shuffle with how bad that game was. But in the preseason, he played well when he got targeted. Um, he runs good routes for a six six round pick with very little college experience. He wasn't a guy that was featured in his offense. I mean, Ratley's been pretty good so far. I just think that um, we've seen the offense kind of move into these like heavy intermediate route concepts where they're throwing the ball 15, 20 yards down the field, just about every passing play. Um, and they're not really setting guys like Callaway and Ratley up for success because they're not letting them build any kind of confidence um, in their route. They're, they're making high degree of difficulty catches the norm. And it just seems like that's been more of the trend as the season goes on that the, um, the creative play calling is just lending itself to having guys open in the, the deeper two thirds of the field. Um, and, and it's just making it really hard on the quarterbacks and, and the quarterback play in general. 
Yeah, and I think that's actually a good segue because it goes into uh, because it, I mean a passing offense is a uh, you know it's as a whole. You know, it's not uh, it's not just the receivers, the quarterback. It's everybody and how they're performing, how you're what you're asking them to do and those kinds of things. So when you're talking about, you know, them asking for these intermediate routes and these difficult catches, uh, well, you need time to get those done. And we're asking an undrafted rookie free agent left tackle and, uh, you know, a uh, sixth man that we grabbed off Pittsburgh's roster on the other (laughs) side and a rookie quarterback manning the helm you know to make these things happen so uh, you know you're really kind of just stacking these odds on top of another uh one on top of another on top of another to you know create low odds uh you know percentages and i think that it reflects that in what our offense is doing so yeah i i, I think it's just leading one into another yeah i saw a couple stats that were really interesting about that um, one was speaking to the average depth of target, um, and I'm sure it's gone up since the um, since the chart since the Chargers game. But but going into the Chargers game, uh, Baker Mayfield was in the top like four or five guys in average depth of target in the NFL. He has a lot of uh, downfield routes, and when you combine that with um, the lack of running game, lack of uh, utilization for the running backs that he's got, um, you're just really you're, you're kind of making your own bed as far as the offense goes. Um, you're you're making things more challenging than they need to be. Yeah, and you'd think that uh, if we have these kind of uh, long routes going on, that we should be able to um, utilize Duke Johnson, you know, in that short passing game or David, uh, you know, DeValve also in that short passing game because there's space vacated here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the scene, the the point that I come to every time we talk about this is that um, it's it's really easy to make make excuses for why the Browns are underperforming in, in the places that they are. It's easy to say they would be 5-0, and but they're being held back by these things. And we've heard that for the last two years pretty extensively. We've heard that for the last seven years, that this is a three-year plan. This is a rookie quarterback. This is a, a defense that's not terribly deep. This is, you know, the wide receivers that, tend to be, that, that have been a problem every year in a different kind of way for seven years. But this is the team that um, the Browns constructed. Like, this isn't an accident. And, and with – the kind of cap space that they had and the deep wide receiver free agent market and the, you know, the, the draft picks that they had available to them. Um, this was the team that they constructed with it. So the, uh, this team has made their bed with regard to running backs, linebackers, wide receivers. And it's, um, I, I, I just refuse to see uh, folks raising their hands and just saying like, we need this in order to be successful. We need to get Amari Cooper in here. We need to, you know, bolster these, uh, the, the, these position groups. Um, this is, this is a team that has talent. Um, it's nobody else's fault when they underperform in areas that they could have addressed. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. It really is not something where it would be like, oh, yeah, well, if we just had X, then we'd have Y. It's really not. You know, it's a systemic issue, and I think sooner or later you just got to come to the realization that, um, you know, those coaches and the, you know, in the front office are the adults in the room. That's who you expect to make these sound decisions. You know, uh, I understand you're upset about the drops. They're way above average. That's, you know, it's hard to, you know, ignore that, blah, blah, blah. But again, coaches, front office, these are the adults in the room, the guys who have time to make these informed decisions. Uh, And, you know, when you have systemic problems and you're not just doing what you need to do, I think it's, uh, you had a point there. That's all. Um, Thing you were most surprised about 
from the team uh, up, up to this point and specifically this week? I think the thing that uh, surprised me most is just um, that Todd Haley doesn't seem to be uh, – I didn't expect him to be a panacea uh, for Hugh, but uh, I just don't feel like we're in a wholly different place, and I thought that it would be better than it is offensively, strategically, uh, you know, schematically, those kinds of things. I thought we'd do better. I expected not great things from Greg, whatever. I'm not surprised by that. Uh, but I thought Haley would, you know, be a, a better Hugh buffer than he's been. So, buffer. yeah, <laughs> for the Hugh tax. <laughs> tax. Um, yeah, I think that's a good answer. I, uh, my mind, I guess, is similar in that it, it is really surprising that, um, it, it is really surprising to me that Hugh Jackson's offense and, and Todd Haley's offense at this point seem to be kind of coming to a uh, convergence. They seem to be kind of doing similar things that last year were very frustrating to watch. But um, I think this, the thing that surprised me the most about this week was that it seemed like the week we were going to begin to see Duke Johnson and Seth DeVille be involved in the passing game. I talk about it relentlessly. I'm sure folks listening to this podcast are just like, oh, he's going to talk about these two guys again. Great. I can't wait to hear about it again for the hundredth time. But um, it just it felt like with them being down to their sixth, seventh option at wide receiver, like, okay, this is a guy who, like, we statistically know in Duke Johnson is a, is a good pass catcher, whether you're running him out of the slot or from out of the backfield. Um, he's got a great elusive, elusive rating. He, he breaks tackles. He gets upfield. He gets yak. Um, he's, he's severely underutilized. He's got the bandwidth to do more. I thought, I thought that this was going to be the week that we saw that. I thought we'd see a lot more uh, 12 personnel sets with one running back in the backfield and two tight ends. Um, where they could be really creative and multiple in the passing game. And instead we just saw next man up. We're going to run the same offense we've run for six weeks. Um, and we're just going to do it with uh, Damian Ratley and the corpse of Rod Streeter. <laughs> yeah. I just like make one tiny little comment on that. Uh, and I, you know, I don't do this often cause I'm a Baker guy, but I, I will say that Baker does contribute to that just a bit. I've definitely seen a few plays where Duke is there to be hit, but Baker is, is looking downfield. And so that was something that we knew coming in, that we got to bring that in a little bit and just um, hopefully I, – I said this on Twitter too. I hope this week was a little instructive, you know, that you can, you can hit your man uh, on the short and he will make a play for you, you know. So hopefully Baker remembers that. I feel like we covered the thing that we're most disappointed in this week um, pretty heavily. Um, so we can just skip that section. Sure. Um, sure. Because the things that we are surprised about are the things that we were also most disappointed about, because for some reason we're assholes and suckers and we keep uh, expecting different things, um, which is kind <laughs> of the, the definition of insanity. Um, Fair enough. So let's talk about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, I remain uh, more terrified of this matchup than I should. And everybody is like, well, we have all these baked in excuses now. Um, I'm sure if we were totally healthy, we'd roll in by 10. And that might be a valid statement. That might be true. If, if, if we were running the week one Sands Tyrod Taylor personnel group out there, um, I'd feel better about it. They, they've had some injuries in places. I'm not sure they can survive injuries in the linebacking core with Joe Schobert being out. He does a lot for this defense and uh, with the cornerbacks who are expected to um, be able to close quickly, tackle well in space and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, this is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is a team that has been awful this year. Um, they've got a great downfield vertical passing attack. They've got great receivers. Jameis Winston is better than a lot of guys. 
Um, I, I think that um, you can have a lot of arguments around the water cooler with where he ranks on that top sure. 15, 20 list, but he's a guy with talent. He's a guy that, that has the arm talent to get the ball to his receivers in space. If you give them the space and we know from experience that um, there, there's going to be, there's going to be receivers in space. Uh, it also doesn't help that uh, OJ Howard is going to be just lurking in the middle of the field as a check down. Um, how do you feel about uh, this, this tilt against Tampa Bay? Yeah. So just like you said, obviously the receiving core as a whole tight ends and uh wide receivers specifically, uh, that's a bad matchup for us this week. You know, we got our two of our top three corners down, uh, which surprisingly we're actually playing well. That's not, um, a, a insignificant thing. Uh, that's going to match up pretty poorly, uh, for on the Brown side and their, you know, their offensive line is nothing, uh, to be scared of. I think that, but it's about, can we cover early? And I don't know that Greg is going to try to cover those first three seconds. Like we need to, I think our only real opportunity is, and you know, this speaks to a lot of those, but if we, if we can just get them to three seconds, we can get pressure on them. And if we can get pressure, Jameis is one of those guys where we can maybe make something happen it comes down to whether you actually believe that, that Greg Williams is going to scheme it as such that we cover for three seconds to start that play, you know? So I just don't know if we're going to do that. You know, at this point uh, you're looking at, uh, you know, not even one, but two tight ends for them that, that are tough. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, sure. And uh, you know, we need Jamie Collins to have a good game. And I, I just hate relying on that, but Jamie Collins is a guy athletically who can cover a tight end. Jabril Peppers on the other side is a guy who should be able to cover a tight end. Um, and then can, will Greg scheme our corners to be able to not give those easy outs uh, for those first couple seconds? Because if we can, I mean, then Larry Ogunjobi is going to have an opportunity to get in there in the middle. I think it, that he's got a good shot. Uh, the ends are going to be a little uh, tougher because, uh, you know, if they either chip with the running backs or the uh, tight ends, both of those guys are actually pass blocking pretty well. So we might have a little bit of a hard time unless they go one-on-one with our ends, uh, getting, you know, Jannard Avery uh, or Miles Garrett home. But uh, we will have opportunity. It's just a question of can we can we just make them hold the ball just long enough for us to get a little pressure? Because if we can, we can force a bad decision or we can force, force an errant throw, uh, one of those things, and, and maybe that will help us stay in it. Otherwise, this offense could score, all right? And, uh, you know, we were definitely much more equipped to handle this uh, three weeks ago than we are today. Yeah. Um, and for those that are super familiar with Jameis Winston uh, as a quarterback, um, he is a guy uh, that's actually pretty cerebral. He, he catches a lot of flack because he's a dumbass off the field, but on the field, he's a guy that really does make very quick decisions and, and gets a good understanding early about what the defense is trying to do to them. He just has, um, you know, and this is, this is such a trope, but he has that gunslinger mentality where he's going to try and make a play. He's going to try and fit something in. He's going to trust his arm uh, more than he probably should. Um, but, but he does have a lot of talent and he isn't fooled uh, by the same BS schemes that some of the, the the quarterbacks that we saw early in the preseason, guys like Nathan Peterman, uh, are, are are fooled by. Um, I know that the uh, the defense still uh, remains very talented over there in Tampa Bay. I think that the um, the, the the combo of Gerald McCoy and Levante David um, can can kind of be a mess in the middle of the field. Um, and even though they uh, have just gotten trucked by most of the offenses they played. It's, it's worth noting that they've played some really good offenses. 
um, and that they weren't historically bad last week against Atlanta. They were just like regular bad. They were just like a regular Brown Sunday bad, not like uh, I'm not sure that they could keep the Alabama uh, Crimson Tide out of the end zone bad. And have you have you uh, heard anything on the injury report? Because uh, last I checked uh, a day ago, uh, McCoy didn't practice, Curry didn't practice. Uh, those guys represent 34% of their pressures for the year. Uh, it it would be uh, a solid thing if they were if they were out for the week. So I'm not sure if you heard anything today. I haven't heard any movement from it. The the guys down Tampa say at this point they'd be surprised if they didn't play. But okay, um, that was that was in talking to them before before we recorded today. So. Um, I'd, I'd have to, to follow up on that, but, um, all in all, I think that you've hit on a lot of the key points, uh, defensively that they'll have to do to, to, to keep the Browns in this game. And that is, um, have a good balance of not, um, not giving guys verticals down the field, letting the cornerbacks, uh, succeed. Um, you're not going to get TJ Carey, uh, pressing Mike Evans at the line and still keeping up with him down the field. It's just, it's just not going to happen. And there's going to be times when that matchup, uh, comes up um, and, and the same thing is true with Deshaun Jackson. Um, the rest of the cornerbacks outside of Denzel Ward aren't going to be able to come up, play press and then be able to keep up. Um, so he's going to give cushions judiciously. Um, and, and the, in lieu of that, the other alternative is that he's just gonna have guys running free in their secondary. I think that they're really going to have to keep Jibro peppers involved um, in the, in the middle of the field. I think that if they're going to be creative with how they blitz Jameis Winston, in a lot of cases, they're going to play, uh, Pepper's kind of as a star. They're going to bring him down in the middle of the field. And they're going to let him disrupt things and hopefully keep everything else at the boundary. Uh, offensively, um, knowing what we know over the last couple of years and knowing what we know with the wide receiver situation, uh, what do you think is going to be key uh, for the Browns to be able to, to keep up and put some points on the board? Because I think that they can't get to 30 points in this one. They, they don't have much of a chance of winning it. I don't necessarily disagree with that conclusion. Uh, but you know i think that as far as the as far as getting there honestly we can just can we just catch the ball at a normal nfl rate <laughs> um you know i i don't i don't see a lot that scares me as far as this uh tampa bay defense goes um i think that we can handle they don't have much pass rush um you know Gerald mccoy like i said Gerald mccoy and Kerry um have you know, 30, almost 35% of their uh, pressures. And it's significantly less than what Cleveland's been able to do. So, you know, I, I, I'm not really scared of what they can do on the defensive line. And I'm not very scared of their coverage to be quite honest, but you can have all that confidence. And I think they his guys, but we got to catch the ball. We got to catch the ball. So I don't know if they're going to do that. Uh, and if things stay the same way that they've been the last couple of weeks, then I have no, I know, confidence in us scoring points if if something changes and we just go to the league average you know go to our players career averages you know like Jarvis you know go back to his 70 percent catch rate instead of 40 I think it's 49 percent at this point you know um, we maybe we'll get like some more usage out of Duke and those guys um, but if we can just get a normal drop rate we can score points you know now do I think that you know, we're going to score enough to beat the team. I don't know, but uh, I don't see anything. I looked uh, you know, I watched the game last week. I've looked at their yearly stats. I, I just don't see anything to be scared of here. So can we execute is my biggest thing. Yeah. I, I mean, the last thing I'll say on this, cause I feel like I'm beating a dead horse is um, you're going to have a lot of drops because you're relying on wide receivers that aren't consistent 
to be consistent, to run consistent routes, to be consistent hand catchers where they aren't. And you're also relying on guys like Jarvis Landry to run different routes than he has. Part of what makes Jarvis Landry's catch rate what it is historically is that he runs, he makes tough catches, but tough catches are one thing when they're within seven yards of the line of scrimmage. They're very different when they're 10, 15 yards down the field. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. I think if they continue to expect different results from the same things that they've been doing, then they're going to be disappointed. But like every week, I, I go into it full of optimism that they're going to do things a little bit differently. They're going to utilize Njoku and Devalve a little bit differently. They're going to use Duke Johnson. And they're going to get guys like Callaway and Ratley who have elite kind of burner speed involved in the short game on slants and screen packages and, and get them open in space where they can do something about it. Rather than, than trying to make every play a, a chunk, like pick it up and – you know, pick it up in pieces, pick it up systematically, because I think that Mayfield's good enough to, to, to be able to do that if you give him the option. Yeah, move the sticks, move the sticks. Uh, and, you know, uh, against this team, you're going to have space. You know, they play a lot of off coverage, like the stuff that frustrates us watching Greg Williams. <laughs> defenses. Nice. So there's there's yards for the taking there, you know, uh, and you can take time off the board while you do it. So, uh, yeah, I would like to see that. I'm desperate to watch another team's defense and say, like, what are they doing? Why are they playing there? Like, why, why are these, why are these guys in the front of the field? None of this makes any sense. Like, I want to do that for another team because I feel like I just spend a lot of time on Brown Sundays doing that for my own team. No, that's fair. Uh, I 100% agree with you. <laughs> you know, that used to be why I liked listening to the local radio in the DC area because I got to listen to Redskins coverage. And it reminded me for the first, it didn't remind me, it actually educated me for the first time and knowing that there are actually franchises out there just as screwed up. Now they've improved a little bit since, but you know, for the first five years I was in DC, that was very much uh, informative for me as a Browns fan. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who, who lives here and has a family that is DC professional sports fans, um, it's nice. It's comforting. It's comforting to know that there's somebody else that feels in many ways the same way that you do. Um, and they had their Cavs 2016 moment last year with the Capitals, but um, the Redskins very much remain the Redskins. So, so that's good to have. They do. Unfortunately, we have that same uh, commonality at the top of the chain. You know, yep. so with Dan Snyder, uh, you know, maybe maybe Clevelanders have never even heard of him. But, uh, you know, if, if you haven't, maybe I'll uh, I'll link an article that will inform you very quickly on the kind of guy Dan Snyder is uh, this week on Twitter. Is the article the A to Z of Dan Snyder? It is. It is. It's <laughs> one of my favorites. <laughs> yes. Every time somebody wants to have an argument with me about who the worst professional owner in sports is, I direct them to that article. And for, for guys who don't know what it is, hit us up on Twitter, Jay Cosmo, uh, uh, Josh Finn, DBN, or Josh Finn. Um, the, uh, the, the gist of it is that somebody went through the alphabet and talked about something with every single letter that represents something reprehensible that Dan Snyder has done, either it, through his sports team or through one of his horrible failed business ventures. It is a funny read, it is an enlightening read, and it will make you feel better about whatever owner uh, you, your team sport has. Truly, truly. <laughs> you know, if you think that we're joking, uh, yeah, that anybody could give a run for the money to our guys, uh, believe me, he can. Yeah, yeah, it's worth reading. It's worth checking out. So, uh, John, please uh, travel safely back to the D.C. area. Uh, looking forward to enjoying some of the brews that, that are uh, hanging out in your trunk right now. And in the meantime, uh, go Browns. Absolutely, man. Uh, good time as always, and uh, it's coming toward you. So, go Brownies. <laughs> See you next week. See ya.
Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.